Good morning, church. Um, I want to introduce our speaker today. Obed is out of town this week at a wedding, and uh, we have the privilege to hear from another uh, pastor who has been a huge support to our church um, since the very beginning. Mike Carlisle has, and his wife Judy have both been walking alongside our church basically since we met in this place to just pray about planting a church. Mike has been involved helping us make decisions, um, sharing his wisdom of many years of ministry. And we have the privilege to hear God's word preached uh, through Mike this morning. And uh, yeah, thanks for being here. Thanks for saying yes to, to come and share God's word with us. But let's, uh, let's welcome Mike this morning. Mark, Mike Carlisle. Well, thank you, Dan. And good morning, church. I am excited to be with you today. In fact, um, oh, by the way, happy Thanksgiving, right? This is a great week for families to get together. You get time off work, off school. You get a chance to visit with people you love and eat good food and put on a few pounds that you have to take off in January, right? So it's a joy to be with you. Uh, Before we get started, let me just say how much Judy and I Love you, love this church, love Obed and Elena. We have followed every step. Oh, by the way, we have my son here with us too. He's from Camarillo, so we roped him in to come down here and dad preach this morning. So this is Jason. But um, I'm one of three advisors to Obed uh, as he started the church and to the staff. And um, as we followed this journey, I got to tell you, it's one of the greatest examples of God's leadership that I've seen in 50 years of serving God in ministry. What's happened in this church is nothing short of a miracle. And uh, from the very beginning, we followed everything through when Obed had to go, Ellen had to go back to London and then come back again and use Zoom and COVID. I mean, everything you can imagine that should shut down a church, you should not be here. This should not have happened. But God, but God, and he has showed up. Judy and I had the privilege of serving nearly 200 churches in our San Diego church network here in San Diego County. We coach pastors and their wives, and we got all kinds of things we do. We help plant new churches, about six new churches a year here in San Diego County with partners. We have a full-time mission and missionary in, in Mexico. We, uh, we feed migrants and refugees down there every single morning breakfast. We provide send relief support. And what that means is We help fund uh, refugee work, we fund human trafficking issues, strengthening communities, children and families issues, and disaster relief. So we're part of all that in San Diego County. And um, we also provide party trailers. I think you guys have probably rented some of our party trailers. For the past 81 years, we've been active in San Diego County. So as we get started this morning, let me just lead us in prayer and then we'll we'll jump into the word. So God, thank you for the privilege of opening your book, best-selling book of all times. Thank you for the clear word of God that corrects, instructs, encourages, lifts, calls us back when we get off track. Now, God, would you speak to us in Jesus' name, amen. The Bible has to be read in context. And there's many types of scripture. Some scriptures are corrective. The one we 
are going to look at this morning is a corrective text. Some is instructive. Some is just simply sharing things that are, some bad things. Um, just kind of an example of, of human experience. Some's evangelistic to get you into the kingdom. So there's all different types of scripture. This morning, this is a corrective text. Last week, I want to jump back in Galatians. Pastor Obed preached in chapter 3, verse 25, all the, all the way up through chapter 4, verse 7. He talked about the importance of being united with Christ, unity in Christ. He talked about the purpose of the law, which the Galatians were struggling with. In fact, there's one passage I just want to go back to. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them to chapter 3. I want to go back to what Obed was saying last week in verse 24. This is really a key verse, and I want you to get it. So put your seatbelts on. We're going to run really hard through the scripture, and a lot of the things that we're going to talk about are not in your notes. If you, how many of you got the note sheets? Any of you got those note sheets? Okay, all right, that's okay, because probably wouldn't help you anyway. We're going to do so much more than what's in the note sheet. There'll be some scriptures put up on the screen, and uh, not all of them will be on the screen. So if you have a note sheet and something touches you, you think, I've got to remember that, write it down. Because if you write it down, you're likely to remember it. Galatians 3.24 has an interesting passage, and it says this. So then the law, meaning the, the, the Ten Commandments and the other 600 laws that... Uh, the Jewish uh, religion was put together to try to obey those Ten Commandments. The law was our, now this translation says guardian. Some translation says tutor. So it's saying the law was our guardian or tutor until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. Now, there's no, there's no English word for this guardian or... Um, what's called a, a um, teacher. That's not a teacher. There's just several ways, but the word, it's paedagogos. In the original language of the Bible, paedo or pedo means child. Ogogos means leader. So literally, if you put the words together from the, from the Greek, it would be child leader. And interesting, back in the days of Roman rule, wealthy Roman families had the privilege of hiring a, of, of having a slave. A man, male slave, and he became this pedagogos. We get the word pediatrician. We get the word pediatrics from the same word. And so they, they would take this slave, and his job was to protect, educate, and care for that child. You say, well, what do you mean? I mean, the old ancient uh, archaeological artifacts that have been discovered, we found pottery shards with a picture of a pedagogos with a young male child, and he's standing over them like this, and he takes them to school, he protects them at school, they're not going to get bullied, because he, he was a big slave, and he brings them home, back home from school, but he also held in his hand a switch. <laughs> so, if the child starts wandering away, like some of us do when we're children, a little whack, and oh, I'm here for a purpose. And so, this Pythagogos was not the teacher this is important. This, this child leader was to bring the child to the teacher. In this case, he's sharing that as an analogy, how the law brings us to Christ. Because you, if you go back in the scripture, when Moses was walking through the, the wilderness and they're wandering around in Egypt, and uh, the people said, oh, we're so, we, we want to go back to Egypt and so forth. Tell us, God, what do you want us to do? 
So Moses went up on the mountain. God said, I'll give you Ten Commandments. He wrote them by his finger in stone. He brought the Ten Commandments down. After a few uh, weeks of that, the people said, now we're under a curse. We can't obey these laws. They're too hard. So there was a Messiah. So the law was simply a way for people to see you can't be, law doesn't correct things. It just shows us what we're doing wrong. We needed someone who could correct us. And so the purpose of the law was simply that, to bring us to the teacher. He also talked about verse 27 where he, he talked about the gender equality of men and women. You remember that? It's a really, really great message. So here's the backstory. He was a Roman citizen born on the coast of Tarsus in Sicily, about 200 miles north and west of Jerusalem. He grew up as a devout Jewish leader, committed to the law. He studied under the famous teacher Gamaliel. As an adult religious leader, he became so zealous, he became a religious terrorist. Obsessed with wiping out everyone who was following the way. Those who believed the Messiah had come and were causing many Jewish people to follow this new teaching, he had put them in the crosshairs. He persecuted the way. Binding, putting men and women in prison. He even received letters from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem to go to Damascus in Syria. They'd heard there's a movement starting up in Damascus. And bring those who followed the way in chains back to Jerusalem. that They might be persecuted for their error. But about noon, on his dusty journey to Damascus, Saul was suddenly overcome by this giant flash of light. So bright was that light, from above, he fell to the ground, blinded, couldn't see. Knowing something supernatural was happening, in Acts 22, it describes the scene. Listen to it. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord? Saul, Saul asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told that all have that you have been assigned to do. Paul said, my, Saul said, my companions led me by the hand to Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me in Damascus. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Now note, Ananias had had a visitation from an angel. He had a vision. And this angel said, uh, get up and go to the street called Straight and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying and he has seen in the vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, it's amazing. So God was speaking to Paul. He didn't tell him all the details. He just said, go to Damascus. But then he talked to Ananias and said, there's a man coming. So God brought these two together. In verse 14, in Acts 22, it says, 
Then he said, the God of our ancestors has chosen you, this is Ananias, to know his will and to see the religious one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? I love that. Get up. What are you waiting for? Get up. Be baptized. Wash your sins away. Call on his name. Now, several years later, Saul, now named Paul, became a church-planting missionary. Amazing. God took someone who was a terrorist and made him a church missionary. Unbelievable. He traveled to Asia Minor, which is now Turkey, where pagan Galiti, they were called Gauls. They were actually Eastern Celts. They were not Roman, and he led them to Christ. These were warring. These were tough dudes. And... Um, so the Apostle Paul left the churches in Galatia. The enemy of the church began to use Judaizers who taught the Galatians. They had to observe. Now, yes, you know Jesus, but you have to be circumcised. And you have to know the traditions. And you have to follow the seasons. You have to observe the ceremonies or else you're not for real. So what they were doing is introducing you're saved by grace, but you're kept saved by works. Now, this incensed Paul because he was knocked off his donkey because he was believing that same thing. Paul, now disturbed, who had been delivered from the same religious rules and religious bondage, starts in on the Galatians. So this is a corrective text to the church in Galatia. And uh, the first thing I want you to see, scripture-wise, is Galatians 4.8. I call this reject bondage. Reject bondage. In Galatians 4.8, it says this. Formerly, when you did not know God... You were enslaved to those things by nature are not God's. But now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? Whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have, may have labored over you in vain. Pretty harsh words from a man who's become a, now a profound leader of the church, saying, yes, you love me and I love you, but hey, this, what you're doing is absolutely wrong. It's going to put you in bondage. And what Paul was saying is, remember how it was before you received Christ? Remember how it was then? And I thought, remember, I remember how it was for me before I received Christ. Do you remember that? What your life was like? Before you had no direction, you were in bondage. Some of us had addictions. Some of us were without hope, had no purpose for living. It's no different today. Look at verse 8. You were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. In other words, he's saying you appeased non-gods. Who were those non-gods? Well, the first one was Hermes. Remember your Greek mythology? Hermes. Hermes is a patron of the gym and fights. He was kind of an MMA leader of his day. Hermes had statues and gyms, and he was also worshipped in the sanctuary of the 12 gods in Olympia, where the Greeks celebrated the Olympic Games. Hermes. His statue was held there on an altar, dedicated to him and Apollo together. So you're worshipping those you're going to go back to those gods that are statues with no power? Oh, by the way, then there's also Zeus. This is the god of the gods, of the, of the Greeks. Most powerful of the Greek gods and goddesses. A god of the sky. 
and a king of Olympus. His temper even affected the weather. Zeus also rules over all the other gods and goddesses. So he was worshipped in most ancient homes through altars and shrines and daily offerings to Zeus. Is that what you want to go back to? You want to worship that kind of thing? He wanted to say, remember, your life had no purpose other than serving yourselves. Remember it left you empty and alone, this ritual of bondage that you were in, trying to appease these gods for their favor so that you might have favor in life? Look at verse 9. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? In other words, you receive Christ. You receive the forgiveness of sin. You now have eternal life. You have hope. You have a purpose for living, discipling others. You have peace. You have love for God and so forth. And then he goes on to talk about recognize that you are slaves to legalism. Slaves to legalism. Special days, they had weekly Sabbaths, special seasons, festivals, Passovers, Pentecost, Tabernacles, special years. They had sabbatical and jubilee years. They observed these special times thinking they would gain initial merit from God. It's a works-based role. Colossians 2.16 says, Let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is Jesus Christ. He came to set us free from the rituals and the social norms and all the stuff that puts us in bondage and the addictions. So what is it that enslaves us? Romans 6. If you have your Bible, you want to maybe write this down or look at it. 16, verse 16. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Paul said in Corinthians, you've been bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. What's the point? Legalism always stresses rules over relationships. Say that with me. Rules over relationships. Say it again. Rules over relationships. That's what legalism does. Jesus made it clear when he was asked by a religious leader, tell us, who, what are the greatest commandments of all? He said, it's simple. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbors yourself. All the commandments and the prophets are summed up in that. So he just wiped out, so to speak, 620 moral, civil, and ceremonial laws that had been created by the religious establishment to say, if you don't obey these things, then you're in trouble. Legalism comes in two flavors, by the way. One is positive and one is negative. The negative is what I grew up with. You don't go to movies, you don't drink or chew or date girls that do. I mean, it's, you just don't do certain things, right? You just don't do it. And so our, the characteristic of being a Christian back a few decades ago was what you couldn't do. I can't do this. So that's legalism on the negative side. The positive side is if you don't have a daily Bible study at 4 a.m. in the morning and you've got to get up and pray and study the Bible and so forth, then you're not really following 
and observing how to be a disciple of Jesus. That's positive legalism. On either side, this scripture is trying to help us correct that. Correct that. Why? Because it's our nature as human beings to earn our way. Am I right? There is a way that seems right unto man. The Bible says, but the end there is a way of death. It seems right that we ought to earn our way, pay for things, show God that we're worthy. God, I am worthy. You d- By the way, you didn't have to send Jesus to die on the cross. I'm good enough. I'm better than that guy. And then Jesus reminded us of Matthew who said, What's the condition to get to heaven? He said, Matthew 5, be ye perfect. Even as my Father in heaven is perfect. Anybody here perfect? Mm, I didn't think so. My hand's up. I'm not perfect either. Scripture says in Romans 3.10, we are not worthy. There is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So what's the solution? Jesus had to come. Pay for our price. Pay the price for our sin. That we, we might have freedom. For by grace are you saved through faith, he said to the Ephesian church. And not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Say gift of God. Gift of God. It's the gift. A gift is something you don't pay for. A gift is something you don't earn. A gift is something that's given to you if you receive it. If you receive it. Now, someone offers you a gift, you say, no, no, thank you. Sorry, you don't get the gift. You ever see those shows on TV? Hey, I've got a box here with something in it. Uh, Would you like to have it? And people walk me, no, I don't want that. They think it's a joke, and most times it is. It's a free gift, according to Scripture. Now, to really get this, we've got to go back to the first chapter of Galatians again. Um, Paul reminded them there's only one gospel, and he said this, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you into the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. In other words, it's not another gospel of the same kind. It's different. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel. But even if we are an angel from heaven to preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached, let him be accursed. That is a really strong word in the original language of the Bible. Let him be damned to hell, basically, is what he's saying. Same thing was happening in Corinth. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 11 to the church there in Asia as well, or in Greece, in Corinth, I fear lest somehow, as a serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so, listen to this, your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Jesus Christ. For if he who comes preaches another gospel, now there's two words in Greek for another. One's another of the same kind, another's another of a different kind. This is a word of a different. Someone preaches a gospel that's different than what you received from us, or if you receive a different spirit from which you, which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well be put up. You may well put up with it. He said, "There is a counterfeit spirit. There is a counterfeit Jesus, and there is a counterfeit gospel." Why do all religious systems that are false? What do they all have in common? By the way, all the cults in America, all the religious, false religions in America, they only started less than 200 years ago. They didn't even exist in this form back in the day. All cults, all false religions have two things in common. Now, you really need to know this as a disciple. They have two things in common. Number one, they all deny the deity of Jesus Christ. 
They deny that he was God in human form. The second thing is, all false religions believe in a works-based salvation. Man can be good enough. Such an affront to God. You didn't, see, you didn't, see, you didn't need to send Jesus because I'm, I'm okay. Satan is a deceiver. Now, if he can keep you away from faith, he'll do that. If, he, if you are in faith, he'll try to deceive you into a different kind of faith other than what this book declares. In fact, in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, the Bible says Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. The word Lucifer really means light. So Jesus confronted the false religious teachers. And I want you to hear this clearly. Those who thought keeping the law was the ticket to pleasing God, which is the antithesis of Jesus having to come and die. So that's why it's so powerful. Those who thought keeping the law would open the door to heaven. Listen to what Jesus said in John 8, verse 44. You of your, speaking to these people that were teaching this, some of the Pharisees, you of your father, the devil, and the gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the Jesus who loves everybody, set, called somebody, you're, your, you're of your father, the devil, yes, it's that important, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father, you want to do, meaning the devil, he was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in truth, because there's no truth in him, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar, and the father of it, wow, is that the Jesus we learned in Sunday school, not the picture most of us have, of the son of God, 1 John 1.15, says, This is a message we have heard from him and declare that you that God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. So let me show you how the true gospel is still counterfeited in our time. Now I'm going to bring this up to the world we're living in right now. So I want you to see how powerful this message was for them in terms of Judaizers, how powerful it is for us in the church that we live in today. Let me show you how the true gospel is now counterfeited. Who is the Jesus of the cults? Now, before I do this, some of you may get upset. I'm going to talk about some of the cults of our day. I'm not talking about the people that are in those cults. They're, good, they're as good a people as you and I are. They're the people Jesus died for. I do believe it's an argument of doctrine. And this has captivated and captured millions of people who are carrying a Bible under their arm, but it's being interpreted by some other philosophy. Who is the Jesus of the cults? Let me tell you about the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He was Michael the archangel, the first and greatest creation of God, who came to earth and lived as a man, died and rose as a spirit. He came back invisibly in 1914 when the millennium began and established his headquarters in Brooklyn. I kid you not. That is the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness. Now we laugh, so who could believe that? You can't imagine how many people who were Baptist and Methodist and just following, but they had no knowledge of the Bible are sucked into this. Let me tell you about the, the Jesus of the Mormons. He's one God in the pantheon of God. Jesus was the spirit brother of Lucifer who came to earth, was born of Eve. 
By the way, all male Mormons are striving to become gods and have children so that the spirit babies in heaven will have bodies to populate. Mormon men will inhabit their own planet and will have many celestial wives. Really? Who would believe that? You don't start there. They have three other books, the Doctrine of Covenants, Pearl of Great Price, and in addition to the Bible. Let me tell you about the Jesus of the Spiritualist. The Jesus of the Spiritualist is a medium in the sixth sphere of astral projection. I don't know what that is. Let me tell you the Jesus of the Christian Scientist. He is a divine idea. Let me tell you about the Jesus of the Unitarians. He's an extraordinarily good man whose followers deified. The Jesus of the cults and false religions is not the Jesus of this book. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Do you see how important that is? If you're believing Jesus who's Michael the archangel, Michael the archangel did not die. He was not buried. He was not resurrected. And he did not atone for your sins. Subtly deceptive. Keeping people away from the real Jesus. The Jesus of the cults is not the Jesus of the Bible. This is what separates Christianity from all other cults. And there's one word you need to know. And that's the word Christology. The person and nature and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus made it clear. He answered the first skeptic. Remember Thomas in the Bible? We call him Doubting Thomas. Remember him? Thomas said he would not believe unless he could touch the scars of Jesus' hands and feet. After the resurrection, Jesus appeared. By the way, this is so interesting. It's found in John 20, 25. It said, the other disciples said to him, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. Now, this is post-resurrection. He just appeared. He appeared in this room. We've seen Jesus. So he, Thomas, said to them, unless I see his hands, the print of the nails, I put my finger into the print, and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Verse 26 says, after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas now was with them. Listen to this. I love this. Jesus came, the doors being shut, he stood in their midst. <laughs> Again, he just showed up. Supernatural body. No time, no space. He could appear. He could. Pretty amazing. Jesus came, the doors being shut. He stood in the midst and he said, Peace, peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Thomas, reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it in my side. Do not be unbelieving. But believing, oh man, you know what Thomas did? He hit his knees and he said, Hatheos mu, how curious mu. My God, my Lord. Thomas became a believer. He is no longer a skeptic. He is a Bible-believing, saved man of God. Now with the power of the Spirit to change the world. Why is this so important? Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation and no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Wow! This is a good place to give you a two-minute... No, I don't have time to do that. 
Why are people attracted to false teachings? Why are they? Because the Word of God has been twisted by someone's writings. No one becomes a false religious candidate or disciple by reading the Bible. For example, Charles Taze Russell, Jehovah's Witnesses, 1879, formed the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society. Joseph Smith founded Mormonism in 1820-30. He received golden tablets from an angel named Moroni in Manchester, New York. The angel Moroni gave him special spectacles to translate reformed Egyptian hieroglyphics and write the Book of Mormon. Only one problem with that, there's no evidence of anything ever called Reformed Egyptian Hieroglyphics. Emmanuel Swedenborg, Spiritualism, 1840. Mary Baker Eddy, Christian Scientist, 1868. James Freeman, Unitarianism, 1785. And before that, in England. And in each case, it puts people into a works-based system of salvation. What an affront to God. Now, let me hurry to the conclusion of this. Not only should you reject bondage, but remember the basics. Paul said now in Galatians 4.12, Brothers, I entreat you to become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Some people think Paul was still partially blind from that day on the road to Damascus. And he had trouble seeing. One of the, one of the writings he talked about having to write in big print. So there's a lot of people that believe that Paul had problem seeing very clearly. Which he says here you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. That's kind of been some evidence. We don't know for sure. But the basic point is Paul is saying, now I want, to, I want to write this on the inside of your eyelids. So when you wake up in the morning and, and you looked, the first thing you would see is God accepts you on a Jesus-based acceptance, not a performance-based acceptance. And amen goes right there. Amen. Thank you. So that's the basic point. That's what he's saying. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. By grace you are saved through faith. It is not of your doing. It's a gift of God, not the result of works. Or we go around saying, look what I've done. Man, I'm, I'm super Christian here. In Matthew 16, Jesus asked a question of his fathers. Who do people say that I am? And this apostle says, some say you're, you're, you're John the Baptist that's come back to life, or you're Elijah, one of the prophets, and so forth. They turned to Peter and said, Peter, who do you think that I am? He turns to you. And he asks you, when you're confronted with Jesus, he asks you, who do you think that I am? It's important. He is the son of the living God, consistent throughout all the scripture. And Peter said, thou art Yeshua HaMashiach in Hebrew. You are the Messiah of God. You are the anointed one of heaven. And Jesus said, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my father, which is in heaven. And upon this rock, that faith, Peter said, who Jesus is. Jesus is the rock, not Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. And listen to this. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, so folks, you don't have to be afraid of the devil. God has set you as the church of Jesus Christ on target to knock down the gates of hell, gates of addiction, gates of sin. 
you knock that down when you share the gospel, which is the power of God, and opens the, the gates of heaven. Hallelujah. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God. The word dunamis, we get dynamite from. It's the dynamite of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So what are the gates of hell? Well, technically, it means the gates of death that Jesus conquered. But the metaphor goes beyond that. It's much more. Gates keep things in. And gates keep things out. Jesus said, you as a believer, you as a disciple, you have the power. All authority to heaven and earth is mine, Jesus said. And then he said, go. So if Jesus is all the authority and all the power, how much does that leave the devil? Zero. So what's his power? It's deception. He's the great deceiver. He can get you to believe something that's been taught by some person who distorted the Bible. Then you've fallen for it. That's why the Bible and the Word of God is so important. All the metaphor here talks about bondage, keeping you in a sinful, bad habit, behavior that Jesus paid for and broke. And because he breaks it for you, he wants you to share that to break it for others. He gives us a purpose. Matthew 28, going to all the world to make disciples. Did you know that's your purpose in life? People, I've been a pastor for 50 years, and the one question people always ask me, what do you think God's purpose for me is? And the answer is so clear. Jesus said, go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all I have taught you, and I will be with you even till the end of the age. Your career provides for your living, but your calling is your life's purpose. For your children, raise them up in the teachings of Scripture. For your family members. Jesus even modeled this for us. Ken Blanchard is a friend of mine who wrote, uh, who wrote The One Minute Manager and 60 other books on leadership. Um, talks about the way of the carpenter. And I love this sort of business approach. He said, Jesus used the way of the carpenter, which is the same way unions use today to determine your level of pay in union jobs. And it's first a novice. Jesus said, follow me. These people were fishermen and just ordinary folks, not people that your HR department would approve to go to work for your company. But Jesus said, follow me. And they followed him. And he said, follow me. That was directive leadership. He said, I'm going to show you what to do. Now, it's not micromanaging. If you don't know anything, you've got a new job. If someone starts showing you what to do, that's not micro, micromanaging. That's training you. So you go from a, a novice to an apprentice. Now, an apprentice is a little higher on the pay scale than a novice because he sent them out in teams then, the persons he called. And he gave them instructive leadership. So they weren't starting from scratch. They had some knowledge of things. They were with Jesus. And then he moved from there to a journeyman. He sent them out then in teams, and he encouraged their leadership. And they came back, they were so excited, said, Lord, even the demons believe and, and respond to your name. And he, he gave him a little lecture on what that meant. And then finally, a master. Paul says, I am a master builder. That's what God wants for every one of you. I'm not talking about becoming a preacher or going to seminary. I just mean he wants you to become a disciple, thoughtful person, being willing for God to use you 
in the ways that he has instructed in your culture and in your context. The final thing I want to say is not only should you reject the bondage and remember the basics, that's where we've been, but third is recognize the bluff. Recognize the bluff. Some of you today, like me, are going to go home and we're going to watch the Cowboys or Steelers. There's three games on this afternoon, even as we speak, so I'll make it short. And uh, the most successful play in football is called the screen pass, the screen play. And a screen pass is a play where the quarterback fakes a handoff or a long pass, but instead he throws a short pass to a receiver who has positioned himself behind a group of blockers. In other words, the Galatians have been deceived, and the Apostle Paul is now telling them the truth. Galatians 4.16 says, Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? In other words, who are you going to believe, me or those who are trying to deceive you? Now listen to me. The greatest gift in your life, you're not going to like this, but it's true. The greatest gift in your life is a friend or a spouse who will tell you the truth even when it's painful. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Be careful how much you are willing to give attention to those who just brag on you. Sometimes it's not brag. It's simply motivation to get what they want. Verse 17 says, they make much of you, meaning to the Galatians, these Judaizers, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that, that you may make much of them. In other words, the issue here is ego and pride. To get you to follow their teaching rather than Christ, they simply deceive you and, and want you to follow a false system. People don't join cults by reading the Bible, but literature about the Bible. Movements, listen to this, movements are not built on the Bible alone, but on what someone has added. Hence, all of the proliferation of false religions. In verse 18, it says, it's, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. He's using a metaphor here. I, I feel like a mother... Who's, who's trying to give birth in the anguish of childbirth. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone. For I, I'm perplexed about you. Notice how much Paul's saying he cares. He's saying, I love you, but I got to tell you the truth. You're off base. You're going the wrong direction. You made a wrong turn. Come back. Get in the word. Figure this out. With the risk of offending them, so they avoid the counterfeit gospel trap, he said, I'm caring for you like I was your mother. Sometimes Judy and I feel like we're grandparents to a lot of leaders in San Diego. Because we had a chance to do this for a long time. We've been married a long time. Now, I'm not going to tell you how long, but it's more than the years we've been in ministry, I'll tell you that. Notice how much Paul cares for them. Now, let me finish this way. The Galatian churches were a mix of both Jews and Gentiles and pagan converts. And the Judaizers were to convince this church that the Gentile believers must be circumcised before they could fellowship 
with the Jewish believers. Paul wrote to clarify what he had initially taught them, that salvation was by faith alone through the grace of God extended to anyone who believed. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. I've quoted it twice. Paul was dismayed at the way the Galatian believers were so easily influenced away from the truth of the gospel. He was adamant that salvation is not dependent on human works. He said in Galatians 1, 6, I'm, I'm astonished you're so quickly deserting the one who called you. But if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel, let them be accursed. As we have said already, and I say it again, and he repeated himself. So what do we do with this teaching from the Bible? Let me just drive this home with this idea. Do you have a relationship with God? Perhaps you're here this morning and, and you've been checking this out. You're in the journey. You're thinking. You're, you're open-minded. You, you think, I want to know which is the right way to go. I wish I had time. I'd love to teach you about world religions, why Christianity is absolutely unique, and it is different than every other religion in the world. I'd love to teach you about why there's so many different forms or tribes of the Christian religion and what makes them similar and what makes them different. But do you have a relationship with God? This is what it's all about. This is the starting line, not the finish line. When you say yes to God, yes, I believe my life, like everyone else, is messed up, and I need help. I need a Savior. We confess our sin where we've fallen short of God's glory. We receive Christ by inviting him to come into our life, and he becomes our Savior. He opens the door to heaven. He knocks down the gates of hell. And he gives you a purpose for living. So where are you on this life's journey? Are you a novice? Are you an apprentice? Are you a journeyman? Or are you a master? Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for the privilege of opening your book and talking about these critical issues for us here here. And God, for all those in this church who have bowed the knee and opened their heart and said, yes, Jesus, come into my life. As Savior and Lord, I now submit to you that you might direct my life from this point forward with my family, with my children. And you have the courage because of that to open your mouth and not be ashamed of the gospel. So, Father, for all those here that are in that journey, I pray that you would just move them along in this journey of becoming a novice, to apprentice, and a journeyman, to a master. So that when they leave this world, the imprint of their footsteps and the words from their mouth and the actions of their life will be recorded, bringing other people along. And, Father, in heaven's name, I'm asking you right now to search our hearts. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, if you're here today and you haven't made that decision yet to trust Christ, today's your day. I'm inviting you to simply pray a prayer like, Lord Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. I need you to come in. Thank you for paying for my sins, forgiving me. I receive your forgiveness. And now, as best as you can with me, would you allow me to follow you with my life? In Jesus' name, amen. Now, if you've prayed a prayer like that, or you haven't let anyone know yet, I'm going to ask you to do something courageous. 
We have a person that will be standing on both sides. These are prayer leaders here in this church. And if you want someone to love you, and the most loving thing can happen to you is someone prays for you. And you can just say to them, you know, I want to take this step. I, w- I want to be unashamed. I want the world to know that I'm a follower of Christ. Today's your day. I promise it will change your life. It will change the trajectory of your future in the most positive way possible. Thank you for listening. God bless you.